Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So today is the concluding episode in this short series uh, in which I've been trying to think through and work through with you some practical ways for addressing the critical social justice movement or wokeness uh, when we encounter it, as I'm afraid we are increasingly likely to do in all kinds of different contexts, whether in uh, relationships with our friends, even family members, uh, in employment contexts, especially in university contexts, uh, maybe even in churches. And I've given one or two examples of where that has been a problem in recent months. And I've got to say, I've enjoyed um, this series about as much as root canal surgery. Uh, it is uh, frankly not enjoyable to think about and um, I suspect that um, for many of you it's been like well really we have to keep on talking about this and I sympathize I genuinely sympathize but at the same time uh, we have to handle many situations in life where where uh, uh, issues are presented to us that we'd rather not think about uh, recall again as I've mentioned before um, Jude's lament at the beginning of his short letter in the New Testament where he would much rather be thinking positively and constructively about the salvation we have in Christ and about uh, its implications for us and how to live that out. But yet he's got to deal with problems which have presented themselves within the church and not to do so would be a form of pastoral irresponsibility that he's not willing to contemplate. And I am um, not wanting to elevate um, what we're trying to do here beyond what is appropriate, but I genuinely feel there is a, a certain measure of that, that um, pastoral responsibility requires um, some attention to what I'm convinced, I'm afraid, is going to be increasingly an issue for a generation or two, how we deal practically with this movement and how we address it and how we try and help people who have been seduced by it. Now, um, uh, in the last uh, three, actually it's four uh, episodes, we've had three new ones and then one episode, which I think the uh, tech team here called episode zero, um, which is a, a collation of previous devotional material from uh, 2000, uh, 2020. Not really devotional material, but it was within a, a framework of daily devotions here at All Saints, uh, which were really a description and history of the philosophy of uh, the social justice movement, which I then called critical theory. Um, and I've talked a little bit more practically in this more recent series about how to uh, understand and identify. And today I want to talk just finally about practical uh, strategies for dealing with this, for identifying um, the uh, ideology to the extent that it is an ideology when you find it and then doing something about it. Recall just from last time, I will continue to refer to this movement as an ideology occasionally, um, but it is an ideology with teeth. It is an activist movement. It doesn't isn't just a worldview. It's not something which seeks merely to provide analysis. It is a manifesto for action. And it is uh, that action that we're going to have to face up to. And, and we may at times uh, find ourselves having to confront individually or within organizations of various kinds. So that's what I want to talk about today. Now, it brings us to the third and final chapter of this book, which I said I found helpful uh, by uh, Charles Pincourt and James Lindsay called Counter Woke Craft. Um, let me say again, uh, these men are not Christians. Uh, they're certainly not writing um, from a Christian perspective. And so at numerous points, I've wanted to correct or supplement things that they've been saying. But I do think in spite of that, it's possible to plunder the Egyptians somewhat and to gain and learn some helpful things from these people who have thought about it a lot more than I have. Um, and, the, and especially James Lindsay, whose podcast I've listened to a fair bit, uh, he is extremely knowledgeable and very, very clear thinking. And so um, I, I've myself tried to learn and 
uh, take on board from a Christian perspective the, what I can from him, and, and you may want to do the same. I'm not in the business of plugging podcasts, but that, that one might be worth your attention. Anyway, um, uh, chapter three um, really is what I'm going to focus on today, um, and this is the, the chapter in which uh, they describe the strategies that might helpfully be used to deal with and address the uh, incursion of woke ideology in all kinds of different contexts. They're thinking particularly about universities. And I want to really restructure what I say today. I'm not going to go through this chapter, uh, just as I haven't really gone through the previous chapters. A lot of this is to do with uh, the practicalities and mechanics of working through committees in an academic context. And it's not particularly relevant more generally than that. But there are some things which I think if I restructure it uh, appropriately, uh, I can present in, in such a way that with the appropriate corrections, it may be helpful for you as and when you encounter this kind of thing. So without further ado, let me make a, a first one correction um, that I think is important for us to uh, pay attention to, and then uh, uh, two or three practical steps towards identifying and then dealing with um, these critical social justice perspectives as and when you encounter them. The first correction I want to make, uh, and a disagreement really, is with the... Um, uh, one or two things that um, they say in the first three or four pages of this chapter, where they more or less insist that when you spot this, you need to do something. If you see something, say something. And I've been thinking in the last few weeks, um, particularly about like, how would I advise, let's say, a young person who's going off to university or uh, an, a junior employee in a company or somebody who's in a kind of social setting where it becomes apparent through some of the conversations and discussions that there are some people that they're around, maybe some of their fellow students, one or two of their friends, somebody at work has been um, uh, seduced by or is being influenced knowingly or unknowingly by critical social justice ideology. What would I advise you to do? And one very uh, important piece of advice, which um, Pinkert and Lindsay don't mention, is in many contexts, I would advise you simply to walk away. Uh, you do not have to fight every battle. Or rather, uh, one way, this is perhaps a better way of putting it from uh, a perspective that uh, tacitly takes into account a Christian uh, post-mill eschatology, one way to fight battles is simply to walk away, to engage by diverting your uh, energies, your time, your speech, your work to domains where they are likely to have more fruit. To put it in concrete terms, let's imagine that you're a university student, you rock up at your new college, and in the first two or three weeks, you're in some innocuous um, science in society seminar, or you're in just uh, a sociology thing, or in an English literature class, or whatever it is you're in. And one of the students, or maybe even the professor, uh, says something which you recognize from the list of uh, buzz phrases that I'm going to give you in a few minutes' time. You think, hello, um, this person appears to have been influenced by postmodern neo-Marxism, or uh, you've read a bit more of um, uh, James Lindsay's uh, uh, longer book, this one, um, uh, Cynical Theories, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay's book, and you recognize a whole bunch of stuff that the lecturer or one of your fellow students says. What do you do? And the answer might very well be, you roll your eyes, shrug your shoulders, and just proceed with your studies uh, as though nothing had happened. Now, the reason you do that is not because you don't care. 
you might care very deeply. You might care uh, very deeply about the person involved and about the the direction that that ideology could take them and your class and and so on and so forth. But you might simply realize that a fool's lips in, invite a beating, and uh, and only a, a fool would walk into a fight that he knows he's really not in a position to fight and to win. You don't have to fight every battle. In fact, this is an extension of a broader apologetic methodology that I want to. Uh, I've found myself sharing with um, young Christians many times, um, where sometimes there's this assumption that every time somebody says something that isn't true, you need to be the person to take it on. You don't. You might simply say, listen, I'm here to get an engineering degree. I'm here to study English literature. I'm just going to carry on studying. I'll write my papers. I'll do my assignments. I'll get through this class. I'll get through this course. I'll get out the other side. And I won't be able single-handedly to change the direction in which the faculty is moving. I won't be able to persuade my whole student body to adopt a mainstream Christian uh, stance on uh, all of these uh, social and historical and philosophical issues. You just might not be able to do that. And if you just rolled your eyes and said, oh, there we go. That's what I expected. Didn't panic. Didn't feel the need to jump in with both feet with some half-baked pseudo non-argument that you think you can dream up on the spur of the moment. You just carry on and do your work and do your thing. That actually counts as a perfectly faithful response. Think of this within the uh, picture of how scripture says God is going to extend his kingdom over time. It is in general through the long-term unsung heroism of people who just uh, live faithful lives they have faithful families, they worship God, they do their job, they do their thing, uh, they live 60, 70, 80 years, and then they die. And the generations roll down, and each generation learns from the mistakes, and to a certain extent from the successes of the previous one. And over time, the number of people who are worshiping God and the faithfulness with which they do so increases, and the Lord grows and extends his kingdom in his way throughout the world. You don't need to be the hero that single-handedly takes down the wokeness of your English literature faculty at whichever college you're at. You just don't need to do it. Not because you don't care about the fight, but because the fight is actually going on elsewhere. And the way for you to be involved in it is by doing your work, worshipping God cheerfully, uh, raising your family faithfully, um, giving to the poor, speaking about Christ when you can, and not getting embroiled in every ideological scrap that happens to hit your personal headlines or cross your personal horizons. So I do want to say that because many times you will find yourselves in situations where you think there's not much I can do here. And if there's not much you can do, then don't. Now, of course, there may be contexts in which uh, that advice is not wise. There may be contexts that you can't get away from. There may be people involved who are friends of yours. It might be that the person who's um, uh, giving voice to those uh, critical social justice influenced comments is your new roommate and you're getting on with him or her really well and you're like oh, what hold on a second I just don't want to walk away from that relationship I'd love to find a way of engaging with that person how can I best do that it might be that um, it's your company in which the a newly appointed assistant director of human resources is talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, whether you own the company or whether you're just another employee within it, it might be that you're not in a position to walk away. It could be a family member who's talking about this stuff. It could be somebody in your church. And you don't, there are many contexts in which the faithful thing to do is not just to step back and walk away. And you have to try and figure out um, how you can engage helpfully in that context. And it's that that I want to direct the rest of this um, podcast to. First, I'm going to give you a few uh, tips for spotting um, 
uh, wokeness or incipient wokeness um, so that you know what to look out for and you realize, okay, this is a sign that something might be going on. And then just one or two practical steps for going on from there to deal with it. Now, spotting this stuff, let's call it. Um, in the previous podcast, I spoke uh, a little bit about something I'd mentioned before, um, the uh, woke tendency to use Trojan horse vocabulary, that is to twist the meaning of words so that it, there's a kind of equivocation going on between uh, an entirely legitimate uh, and uh, uh, right meaning of a word, something we all ought to be able to applaud, a word like diversity, and then a postmodern neo-Marxist twisted definition of the same word like diversity. And I refer to this as a Trojan horse because the um, as in the Greek legend of the great horse of Troy, um, the uh, innocuous and meaning, uh, all widely agreed upon meaning is like the Trojan horse, which is the vehicle within which the toxic and noxious meaning finds its way into things like speech codes and um, uh, company policies and so on and so forth. Um, now, what are some of those words? Well, um, here is just literally a long list with a bunch of comments. Um, some of these words, um, uh, Pincourt and Lindsay call them woke crossover words, that is to say words which have these, these two meanings. But here are just some examples. I'm just going to read through the list and then comment on them and, and you'll see what I mean. Critical, decolonization, discourse, diversity, embed, empowerment, equity, inclusion, intersection, justice, liberation, knowledges, narrative, perspectives, privilege, race, racism, resistance. Now, what strikes you when you hear that list of words? The first thing that probably strikes you is that you'd heard all of them a long time before the um, critical social justice movement made a big impact on the world scene. Um, that, that may actually technically not be true because this thing has been around longer than we realise. Um, but certainly before wokeness became a thing that people talked about in, su in such terms in the public square and in universities, you might have heard all those words before. The point is they are familiar words with a perfectly reasonable and uh, a meaning that we ought to applaud and defend. We ought to defend justice. We ought to defend empowerment. We ought to defend equity and diversity, rightly understood. The problem is, of course, that they can be used in um, other ways to import this toxic ideology. Now, I don't want to give you a kind of hermeneutic of suspicion in relation to all your uh, uh, interactions. And I think on the whole, um, the, the tendency towards suspicion, which Pincourt and Lindsay advocate, is probably most uh, appropriate in contexts where there is a very good reason to believe that wokeness will be making advances already, like the university context they're speaking of. I certainly don't think we should have this sort of suspicious attitude towards anything and everything and every conversation with our family. So if somebody starts saying, if somebody just says the word equity in relation to the distribution of turkey portions at Thanksgiving, you shouldn't suddenly think they've become a neo-Marxist. So how can we distinguish then um, uh, the uh, different ways in which these words might be used by the people who speak them. Well, there's a bunch of other terms which are more, which are what uh, Lindsay and Pincourt call overt woke words, and these are easier to spot because they are basically made up. And this will take a minute or two, but I'm going to uh, read through the seven, eight, nine, actually nine different categories of terms which. Uh, if they're sprinkled into, this is the key thing, if you hear these sprinkled into conversations where they don't seem to make sense, 
or which they don't even have a place, your antennae should immediately flick up and the red light should start flashing on the dashboard because this is a sign that something is probably wrong. So there are nine categories and a bunch of words within each of them. Let me just read through them. This is the kind of thing this book really is good for, giving you the nitty gritty details. So words that appear highly technical and that often originate in philosophy, for example, dialectic, epistemology, hegemony, words like that, in other words, used in contexts where you wouldn't expect to find them. Second, words that appear to combine multiple words and are not that are not normally associated. Um, binary privilege, colour struck, compulsory heterosexuality, epistemic exploitation, cultural competence, meta-narrative, and so on. Most of those words are, or those phrases, are combinations of words which have been thrown together. And yes, basically what they're doing is seeking to give a veneer of academic respectability to, to a, a nonsense philosophy, but one which is um, driving the critical social justice movement. Words that appear to have been made up, well, yes, yeah, some of them have been, autosexuality, colorism, dead name, episteme, cisgender, heteronormativity, minoritize. Uh, yeah, they're all made up words. They're words which have entered the lexicon in recent years, and they've done so because they label claims which are new ideological claims, claims that have arisen within the um, critical social justice movement. If you hear words, you think, that's just a made-up word, isn't it? Keep, keep your senses, keep your emotional and uh, relational balance in these conversations and learn to spot things you think. Um, that's just not a word that existed five or ten years ago. Words that are spelled differently than they normally are, uh, often using strange letters, particularly the letter X, um, uh, Latin X, Mathemat X, um, X-disciplinary, uh, some examples. Uh, again, these are... Um, made up labels, made up words, which have been introduced specifically in order to label uh, claims and categories within a new and toxic ideological system. Number five, words that describe Western society, but which are also used in a decidedly negative sense. Um, uh, words like West, liberalism, capitalism, modern, modernity, used negatively, and I would add to this, used negatively without sufficient justification. When you when you hear somebody um, speaking about the West or about capitalism or about something in a way that um, implies something bad about it that we all ought to be able to agree on without argument, then what's behind that? Well, just think for a second. What's behind it is a framework of thought in which it can legitimately be assumed by everybody that those things are bad without argument. And that is actually a Marxist and neo-Marxist post-Marxist uh, view of history in which the West and Western capitalism in particular are viewed as bad things. And then remember the origin of uh, critical social justice in Marxism, the economic and partly social categories of Marxism are then transferred into other cultural domains um, to generate um, what we now know as critical theory or critical social justice. Um, you will sometimes find, category six, words that are traditionally used as a positive, in a positive way, but used negatively or derogatorily. Now, this is a very intriguing thing to, put, to, to, um, uh, to learn to spot. When you hear words like logic, reason, argument, enlightenment, freedom, free will, choice, individuality, and so on, used in a way which implies that we ought to think ill of those things, then what's going on? Well, what's going on is that the worldview that's being articulated is one in which those things are bad. 
which is a different worldview from the one that I hope you and I generally um, want to embrace. Obviously, there are there are things wrong with the Enlightenment. Um, this is one point at which the, the non-Christian background of this book makes itself evident. But the idea there's something wrong with logic and reason and argument um, in principle, well, yeah, certainly doesn't come from um, the uh, view of life that the West has inherited from its Christian uh, influences over centuries of uh, the gospel making itself present and known in society. Number seven, words and expressions that explicitly contain references to group identity while also seeming invented. So words like whiteness, white privilege, white adjacency, fat shaming, ableism, gender traitor, um, notice what's going on there. These Again, these are words which it's been necessary to invent to label categories of, in this case, disparagement that are connected with identifying people by their group membership. And so if you spot words like this, this is a sign that something a little dodgy is going on. Number eight, words and expressions that sound decidedly bad or evil, which again, are built on familiar terms, colonialism, conflict, oppression, bias, false consciousness, struggle. Again, none of these is a dead giveaway, or perhaps false consciousness is. But um, what you'll find is that uh, these uh, uh, terms are, uh, again, they're brought in to uh, contexts where they're necessary in and redeployed to label aspects of the way that we are being told we should think about life that derive from a critical social justice perspective. Um, and then uh, finally, category nine, uh, words that are opposites of crossover words. Um, crossover, I'll just read this paragraph to explain it. Crossover words often have complementary woke opposite words to which they are juxtaposed. So for example, racism is often juxtaposed with anti-racism colonization with decolonization, exclusion with inclusion, segregation with desegregation, and so on. And here's um, Pinkhorton Lindsay summarizing. If you hear any of these words or expressions, it is an indicator that the person using them or advocating their use adheres to the critical social justice perspective. Now, just pause. Um, I want to backtrack, um, to step back one half step from that. It is not an indicator that they adhere to the critical social justice perspective. It may be an indicator that they may adhere to the critical social justice perspective in some degree, to some extent. I want to resist the hermeneutic of suspicion towards every and every any and every last person. But the crucial thing to do, just to summarise where we've got to so far, you're trying to identify: um, is this a context in which this critical social justice or woke worldview is making itself present? Uh, if it is, you may be able to spot it by spotting one or more of these words or phrases. And if you do, you need to keep your head and react calmly along the lines I'm going to suggest now. So how should you uh, react if you're in a context where you feel like, okay, I, I do need to um, say something. I can't just walk away. It wouldn't be the responsible thing to do. Well, the first and most important thing to do is to try to identify the legitimate core of the argument that is being used, which you don't want to oppose. Just recall the kind of argument that I, I highlighted um, 
uh, in the previous uh, episode, the uh, reverse Mott and Bailey Trojan horse argument. Remember the uh, picture of the medieval Mott and Bailey? Uh, you have a uh, the Mott is the small, uh, easy to defend uh, central citadel within a settlement that everyone can retreat to if they are attacked. The Bailey is the region surrounded by uh, a much lower wall in which people normally live. And the reverse Mott and Bailey argument attempts to go from the Mott to the Bailey. Something like this. If the Mott is the definition of a term or an idea that everyone can agree with and is easily defensible, racism is bad. Sexism is bad. Uh, discrimination uh, that uh, unjustifiably um, uh, marks people down because of uh, their group identity is bad, and so on and so forth. The Bailey, by contrast, is the woke extension of that idea. Uh, not racism is bad, but all white people are racist. Not sexism is, sexism is bad, but all men are sexist, and so on and so forth. Uh, and that's not to oversimplify the point, that that's just to give a couple of simple examples. The, the structure of the arguments can be uh, more complex than that. Now, um, in Court and Lindsay, point out, it's quite helpful on page 73 and uh, 74, that uh, under the heading of disarming the situation, one of the most important things to do is express sympathy with the mot. Um, in fact, they, they talk about it um, a little bit uh, in, in more detail on page 58. Um, stealing the Mott and bombing the Bailey. We'll come to bomb the Bailey in a second. But it is vitally important that if somebody is articulating a perspective which could be read in a defensible, uh, positive, indeed biblical fashion, that we occupy that space. Let's take an example. Um, and the uh, example they give, I'm back on page 58. Um, uh, I'll quote from the book just to, um, to illustrate. Uh, in the section on the Motten Bailey above, a couple of chapters ago, the example of a woke professor advocating for a lower proportion of white professors on a hiring committee was evoked. It was explained that such a proposal might be justified based on the extreme, Bailey, claim that white people are inherently, unconsciously, and irredeemably racist. A typical Mott proposition could be retreated to if challenged by asking whether the challenger didn't believe that racism existed, unquote. Now, just think about that for a second. What's the mot? What is the position that you absolutely need to affirm your sympathy with? It is the claim that racism exists. Steal the mot. And this goes back to what I wanted to say a, a couple of weeks ago, that um, particularly in relation with, in connection with race relations, but actually in connection with, uh, by extension really, with all of the conflicts that uh, the critical social justice movement calls attention to uh, within society between groups of people. There is a way of being on, in the wrong, actually biblically in the wrong, in relation to all those conflicts. It is possible uh, for Christians actually to be racist or actually to be uh, discriminatory on the grounds of sex, male or female, in ways that we ought not to be. And if we are, we're not going to be able to respond effectively because we need to steal the mop. 
We need to say and be able to say without uh, any actual counter evidence in our lives that we are absolutely opposed to ungodly sexual discrimination, absolutely opposed to racism in, in all its forms. And to disarm the confrontation, one of the first and most important things to do, perhaps the most important thing to do, is to express sympathy with that defensible position. And to whatever extent you can to show, maybe not explicitly, that you have lived in keeping with that. Um, I think it may be worth just reading a, um, a, a paragraph or two from page 70, 73 and 74 um, to... Uh, give um, Pinkhorn and Lindsay's perspective on this uh, and just to illuminate it a bit more. It's common when trying to sow doubt among the woke proximate, remember that uh, terminology from a couple of weeks ago, to launch directly into arguments against the critical social justice perspective. Well, if you're going to do that, the problem with this approach is that given the current climate, people will often react badly to any criticism, whatever, of their perspective. Very quickly, people can think, even without understanding why, that any criticism you bring up implies that you are right-wing, racist, white supremacist, or any other negative epithet that might spring to mind. As a result, it's important to begin the presentation of any criticism with one or two disarming introductory statements and a disarming tone. Again, I want to take exception slightly. You actually need to be sympathetic, be disarming, not put on an act of some kind. I don't think that's what they mean, but it's just worth emphasizing. This needs to be the kind of person you actually are. You need to be demonstrably sympathetic to the the legitimate claims that constitute the mot in somebody's argument. Naturally, you need to believe the statements you uh, uh, and you should avoid using woke words. Okay, what's that basically saying? You need to actually say the truth. Well, that's obvious. It's also helpful to demonstrate sympathy with the particular cause under discussion as well as camaraderie with your interlocutor. And they give some fairly banal advice um, about how exactly to do that. But yeah, it's actually worth, it bears repeating. Like you, I don't think anyone should be discriminated against based on X, whatever it is, skin color, sex, etc. And then they highlight the shift to what it is you're actually trying to say positively. Quote, at the same time, what concerns me about why the critical social justice perspective is, and then we'll come to that in a second. Now, what's the aim here? The aim is to increase the chances that the discussion will get off on the right foot and you'll be able to sow doubt in the right way. You need to be able to demonstrate that you're not actually a white supremacist, not actually sexist, not actually misogynistic, and so on. And it's worth affirming that specifically because what's going on in people's minds is so confused and the, the rhetorical shape of much modern dialogue, if we can call it that, uh, lurches so quickly to extreme accusations that um, uh, demonstrating to people whose minds we actually want to change that we sympathise with the, uh, the good intentions that may, may lie at the core of what they're saying is so important. Okay, so steal the mod. And then, second half of this, bomb the Bailey. Another way of putting this is it's the old-fashioned um, uh, reformed scholastic um, method of drawing distinctions. We want to draw distinctions between the entirely right and innocuous claim, the mod, and the 
entirely toxic and destructive claim that's really being advanced at least by um, uh, informed advocates of the critical social justice perspective, the Bailey. And in order to do that, you're going to need to persuade people that there's something wrong with a critical social justice perspective. So as we conclude, let me just run briefly through um, a number of things. I won't go through all of them, but just some of the, the points that Pinkwell and Lindsay highlight that help us to draw uh, attention either of the person we're speaking to or of other people in the conversation, like on the board of a company or something, to some of the problems with the critical social justice perspective. And here are a few examples. First one, equity is too simplistic. Recall the notion of equity um, uh, that I discussed in uh, two or three podcasts ago. Um, equity uh, is, roughly speaking, the claim that uh, the outcome of any process must uh, represent exactly the group identity proportions of the input to any process with an additional allowance for uh, uh, reparations, positive discrimination in favour of those who in the past may have been discriminated against. So to take a classic, uh, um, an example, imagine that you're a, a, a school um, and you're admitting uh, engineering, a graduate school, say, admitting engineering students, and you discover that um, the uh, proportion of male and female students in your intake is something like 70% male, 30% female, whereas the population is about 51% female, I think. It's, it's pretty close to 50-50. Well, uh, the doctrine of equity will insist that the difference between the outcome of your process and the proportions of those groups in society is due to discrimination. Systemic discrimination is the name for it. Systemic discrimination is just the name given. It's a, a, a highfalutin name given to discrimination that remains uh, allegedly, sorry, the, to, to the thing that must be causing the disparity in outcomes after you've actually identified all the actual processes. So the, the insistence, in other words, is that any difference in outcomes between groups must be a, a result of discrimination. And systemic discrimination is just the form of discrimination that's left over once you've actually identified any actual discrimination that's going on. So 70% male engineers in your postgrad engineering course, that's due to sexual discrimination somewhere, systemic discrimination. Now, Pinkwart and Lindsay point out simply that that claim is simplistic. And you can imagine asking the question to your hiring committee or your, your, your graduate recruitment committee of which you're a member or whatever other context that you're in. Uh, just asking the question, um, don't you think that there's some other factors which might drive the difference in outcomes? Like what if more men just want to be engineers than women do? And there's plenty of research that's been done to show that you just get differences in outcomes of that kind because of people's choices and preferences. It's not all because of discrimination. Equity is too simplistic. Um, second point, um, the critical social justice perspective is itself discriminatory. Uh, what's actually advocated in uh, context where critical social justice advocates want to, quote, redress the balance, unquote, between um, oppressed and oppressor groups or between just groups in general, uh, involves discriminating against people on the basis of their group membership. That's what discrimination is. And if you don't believe me that that's been an issue in recent years, then just check out the news articles on 
uh, the admissions scandal at Harvard involving students from different backgrounds, particularly uh, Asian backgrounds. Um, inclusion begets exclusion, third argument. Um, this goes back to not uh, the doctrine of equity, but the doctrine of inclusion that um, I spoke about. Again, it was in those devotions that were re-released um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the doctrine of uh, inclusion uh, requires that inclusive spaces be created uh, for people who might feel or who other people might feel that they feel uh, discriminated against or uh, microaggressed against in some way. And an inclusionary space is one that necessarily excludes people that might make the minority or oppressed group feel uncomfortable merely by their presence. It doesn't actually have to be the case that, um, let's say, uh, a woman has actually felt any form of hostility from men. It just needs to be the case that somebody imagines that she might. And what needs to be done then is that a space, whether a space, a physical space or some other kind of uh, domain, some other kind of context, must be created from which men must be excluded, men in that case being the oppressor group. In other words, the way that inclusion actually functions in practice is simply by excluding people who are held by critical social justice ideology to be the oppressors. It's not actually inclusive in the proper old-fashioned good sense at all. A fourth point they make is it's always useful to point out the bad historical track record of any attempts to discriminate against people on the basis of group identity. Pinkhorn and Lindsay uh, at this point can't resist the uh, temptation and why should they? The point to the literally hundreds of millions of people who died in the Soviet Union and communist China, not to mention the Jewish Holocaust. Um, there's just a few horrific examples, quote, that they give. Um, uh, typically, such atrocities are justified as morally righteous at first and turn bad later. Uh, the, the, the idea of discriminating against people or in favour of people, and that amounts to the same thing, obviously, uh, on the basis of group identity has a pretty bad historic track record, and it's worth pointing that out. Just a couple of uh, other things um, that it's worth mentioning, and this really will be significant mainly for people uh, working in a commercial context, and I know that's only a small number of you, but um, uh, it may be worth your while hearing it anyway. Um, uh, page 76, restricting candidate pools risks lowering standards. Well, it doesn't risk lowering standards. It will actually, statistically, in the long term, lower standards. If um, in, an, in an effort to, um, uh, let's say, increase female representation on a board of directors, most boards of directors of companies have a, a lower than 50% representation of women for all kinds of reasons, some of which are due to historic sexism, but others are due just to the career choices that women make. Um, but restricting candidate pools to just only women necessarily involves excluding potentially highly qualified men. It's just uh, an inevitable effect of that. And if, if you're working for a company that actually cares about performance, you might want to point that out. More than that, it's actually counterproductive. And this is another point that Pincourt and Lindsay make on page 77. It's actually counterproductive for those, quote, qualified, diverse candidates that may get appointed. I mean, I, it's... It's not difficult to imagine, is it? How, how would you feel um, if you were a well-qualified uh, woman who was appointed to a post um, off the back of um, a policy change which required an all-women shortlist for a particular uh, position in the company? 
how's that going to affect your ability to engage professionally with your colleagues? It actually has the effect of undermining the ability of well-qualified people, whatever group identity they may have. And remember, uh, group identity for many of these instances is entirely irrelevant to how people should be treated in uh, the workplace. But it has the effect of undermining your ability to do your job. And it's one of the most, um, it's probably, I think, in the long run, will be one of the most destructive effects of this ideology that it it will work against even its own stated aims um, because people will you can see how it's going to happen um, uh, the uh, woman let's say in that context is unable to uh, uh, get away from the background sense that she was the diversity hire in that context even if frankly she wasn't it could, could be that she was easily the most well-qualified person for that position. But uh, if she was hired in a context where those diversity quotas or um, discriminatory hiring practices were in effect, um, then that's actually going to compromise her ability to do her job because of the effect it will have on her relationships um, with uh, people uh, that she's working alongside. Okay, so the rest of this book, like I said, there's a ton of um, detail that's really valuable. Some of it is particularly valuable in a quite narrow range of situations, so I'm not going to talk about it at great length here. I do think it's useful. I do think, as with anything, I've said this repeatedly, um, it's necessary to uh, have in mind the fact that as Christians, we don't just grab something and just imbibe it uncritically. We need to think wisely and critically about it. But nonetheless, uh, we plunder the Egyptians in, uh, in every domain, and these are two Egyptians that have seen a fair amount of uh, what's going on in the critical social justice movement and they've had the uh, co competence and capacity to put in a form which I think is pretty easily digestible so I hope it's been helpful to you we're done with this uh, series of episodes I don't suspect we're done with this issue and it may well come up it will need to come up at various points in the future but um, uh, hopefully this will have proved not uh, too unhelpful a uh, diversion from the kinds of things we'd much rather be thinking about and maybe it will also prove useful uh, both in alerting us to uh, the dangers of this ideology and also as I've pointed out on more than one occasion uh, alerting us to the dangers of actually being discriminatory actually being sexist in ungodly ways actually being racist if we are uh, falling into those sinful traps then we have only ourselves to blame for the judgment of God against us which may well take the form of this movement grabbing hold of our churches our families and other structures in the society in which we live but if we are committed to faithfulness and godliness in having integrity as men and women who follow Christ and if we are willing to be wise as serpents as well as innocent as doves then I hope and pray that we may either be able to uh, weather the storm or, by God's grace, um, actually do something to rescue people and organisations from the mess they would otherwise get themselves into by imbibing this stuff and seeking to live it out. That'll do us for now, though, I think. Um, uh, the Lord bless you, and I hope uh, very much that you'll join us on the next podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.